All right. Our scripture this morning is from Matthew 28, verses 16, 16 through 20. Um, and then at the end, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be God. Have a seat. Um, okay. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Peace be with you. Welcome to Trinity. Good to see you. Uh, you can scoot in. You can scoot in. I'm fine. Well, before we begin, big thank you. Uh, most of you I know were serving last weekend here for Easter Sunday, uh, which was awesome. We had over 80 people here, which is a high for us. Uh, going back to the, the public launch, which is super exciting. So thank you for all the time you put in last weekend. And then, of course, yesterday for Columbia, uh, many of you were serving, uh, giving up your entire Saturday to, to paint rocks, paint shipping containers, plant flowers, hang lights. Um, I don't even remember all the stuff we did. It's, uh, it's a distant memory at this point. But we got great um, uh, exposure, had uh, some time in the Missourian, which is cool. Legit, big time. Uh, talked to a few other reporters, and uh, I believe some stuff's coming out in the news today. So really thankful for you all uh, jumping in and serving in that way. Uh, a couple big things for us as a, as a church family. Uh, we are now at the end of this seven-month study in the Gospel of Matthew, which is kind of hard to believe. As long as we have been meeting weekly as a church in this, in this form, we've been in the book of Matthew. And now we've just read the final verses and we've heard Jesus' final words before ascending back into heaven. And I'm reminded of what I call the old youth pastor trick. Uh, we're at the end of a big like spiritual retreat or conference. All the kids gather together and they're hyped up on spiritual adrenaline and actual adrenaline, like actual sugar. And then the youth pastor sort of reviews everything that Jesus has done for us. He's, he's served us, he's, he's cared for the poor. He died for our sins. And then he says, look at how much Jesus has done for you. Now, what are you going to do for him? And I've always had a little bit of a problem with this technique, even though it's pretty effective. Uh, it's short to the point, uh, somewhat compelling. But my problem with it is that it's missing a step uh, and maybe the most important step. Um, because whenever the scriptures tell us what Christ has done for us, they don't immediately tell us then what we need to do but there's something in between, and that's who we become. There's a fundamental shift in who we are. There's a shift in our identity that takes place between what Christ has done for us and then what Christ calls us to do. And so apart from that new identity, apart from the means to actually do what Jesus has called us to do, uh, that question is just mere uh, obedience. It's actually rooted in guilt and shame. What are you going to do for Jesus. And if you don't do it, what does that say about you? And so what the Bible doesn't do is that, the old youth pastor trick, but what it does do is it calls us into a, a deeper story. It does a deeper work in our hearts. God remakes us from the inside out. And so the old 
dies and something new is born within us. And it's like the transformation of a caterpillar to a butterfly where there's an entire reconstitution of, of, the, of the organism, of the internal being. And so that's what's taken place as we've gone through the book of Matthew. We've been given a new identity. And so Jesus now, risen from the grave, he calls his followers together and he reminds us of what his life, death, and resurrection has accomplished. And it's three things, a new identity, a new mission, and a new power. So we'll start with that, that first one, the new identity. And before I go too much further, I think what's most helpful is we remember the identity that we've been given in Christ, uh, that we review some of the story of Jesus in Matthew. Uh, after seven months, I admit I'm a little bit uh, sad to be moving on from this book. I remember for, for years as we were putting together the plans for this church plant, knowing that we would start the church with Matthew and teach through Matthew for seven months. And so I've been studying it for, for years over the last 30 weeks. I've probably spent 15 hours a week studying it. So to be at the end of it now, honestly, I'm a little sad and nostalgic, two things I don't normally feel. Sad I feel, nostalgia I usually do without. But we began our series looking at the birth of Christ, looking at all these Old Testament prophecies that are fulfilled in the birth of Christ. The angel comes down and says, this is the Christ, the chosen one. He's the one that will save the people from their sins. Something amazing is about to happen. And then when Jesus' ministry began, we, look at the, we looked at the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7. We see that Jesus is forming an, an entirely new community with a new vision for what the truly good life is. And everything seems upside down at first. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But of course, everything that seems upside down is actually right side up. And, and Jesus was flipping our hearts right side up. And what he was calling us to was a deeper transformation, what we called from the heart righteousness. And then next we looked at the subversive kingdom of God. The majority of the book of Matthew, from about chapter 8 to chapter 25, is, is primarily Jesus' teaching on the kingdom of God. And this is a kingdom that confronts and subverts the kingdom of this world. And so there's a kingdom of the world that's in rebellion against God, and then we rebel against the rebellion. And everything has changed. In the kingdom, our relationships are changed, family and marriage changes, how we use our money changes, our work is transformed. And all this time, Jesus has set his face toward Jerusalem. He's going toward the pain, going toward the place where he, he'll be arrested and falsely accused and beaten and crucified. And so over the last six weeks, we've been looking at our king's cross. How the king gathered his disciples at, at, in the upper room for the last supper as he washed their feet and gave them final instructions. And then he willingly gave up his life in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was led into the city to be mocked, beaten, and hung on a cross. And it's from the cross that he spoke his final words, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And then it is finished. And Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. But then on the third day, the stone is rolled back, the tomb is empty, and Jesus has risen. And so we now have a, a resurrection wonder, a resurrection hope beyond the grave, and then a resurrection life before the grave. Our eternal life begins now. And so as we review all of this story of, of Jesus in Matthew, the question is, what now? 
What do, we, what do we do with all this that we've learned, everything we've experienced in Matthew? And I think that's what Jesus is, is doing when he, when he leads his disciples out here on the mountain. And before he ascends, he gives them these final instructions. And what now is our new identity in Christ? Jesus is reminding us that we are changed people. And your identity is, is the truest thing about you. It's, it's you at, at your deepest, the one thing that nobody can take away or change. And your identity is not something that you develop. It's not something that you achieve. It's something that you receive from the outside in. And so if you've seen that movie Gone, Baby Gone a few years ago with Casey Affleck, the opening line in it, I love it. It says, I always believe that it was the things you don't choose who make you who you are, your city, your neighborhood, your family. People here take pride in those things like it was something they'd accomplished. And that's mostly true. Our, our deepest identity is something that is given to us. And in Christ, the truest thing about us is Christ within us. And that's something that we only can receive. And so the gospel doesn't give us a new set of obligations and duties, but the gospel gives us a new identity. And what we do flows from who we are, which flows from what Christ has done. So what Christ has done for us transforms who we are, and then it enables us to do what Christ has called us to do. And so in verse 16, it says, the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore go. And so all this is leading up to therefore. Christ says, all authority in heaven and on earth, and he's about to give some of his authority to his disciples. He's going to work his authority through the disciples. And he says all this before he says, therefore, go. So again, it's what, what God has done that shapes who we are and then tells us how to live. And we've seen the, the powerful transformation of, of the disciples taking place. We've seen Peter, who is acting like a fool throughout most of Matthew, suddenly becomes the foundation of the church in Acts. James and John and the other disciples are completely transformed. They go from arguing over who's going to be on the right and the left of Jesus in the kingdom of heaven to actually being the, the leaders of the early church, men of humility, men who start churches and write scripture. And this kind of transformation is only possible when it happens at the deepest place of our being. We receive a new identity, and the next thing is that that leads us to receive a new mission. And so Jesus says, therefore, verse 19, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And so this is the pattern of mission that we've talked about before, that God draws us in so that he might send us out. He draws us in to know him and then he sends us out to make him known. We're blessed in order to be a blessing. And the four components of this new mission, the first one is to make disciples. A disciple is a, a follower of Jesus who is a multiplying follower, a follower who makes other followers. And so Jesus is saying, tell people about me, draw them into this story, and then send them out with their new identity. And so make disciples, but second, make disciples of all nations. Not just where it's close, not just where it's comfortable, not just in the places that we already know, but go to all nations, not just where you know the language, but go to all nations with this message and with this power. The third thing is baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
And so baptism is the initiation into the people of God, into the kingdom of Christ. It's an initiation ceremony into a community. And so this is, a, this is an encouragement and a reminder that the Great Commission is not given to an individual, but the Great Commission is given to a community. And every one of us, when we are joined to Christ, we become joined to one another as well. And then the last thing is teaching them to obey everything that's been commanded. And this is a work that will never be finished until Christ returns. We continue to teach God's word, continue to apply it to our lives. And what Jesus is calling us to is a very specific role in our community, in our world. And it's what we've called before a redemptive presence. We're present in the world. We're not of it, but we're within it. And we're within it so that we might bring about redemption and renewal. A redemptive presence means being in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, in our social groups with this newfound purpose. And so first of all, we're present, we're, we're there, we're with people, but we also get to know them. We don't just live in a house, but we live in a neighborhood and we get to know our neighbors. We don't just go to work, but we see our workplace as a place of mission, a place of redemption and renewal. We don't just drop our kids off at school, but we invest in the school. We put ourselves in the school. We're present, and there we seek redemption and renewal. And we don't spend 100% of our money on ourselves. We don't spend 100% of our time doing just whatever we want to do. But we serve and we sacrifice, again, to seek and promote redemption and renewal. One of the most encouraging things that's happened this spring was last Sunday— uh, and it wasn't just that we had more people than we've had before, or more people than we usually have, but it was who was here. We had 14 first-time visitors, which was phenomenal. And all 14 of those people were the result of a direct personal invitation, which is pretty incredible. Nobody just found us online or wandered in because we have a sign out on Stadium Boulevard, but all 14 of those individuals was invited by one of you all. And that's encouraging because regardless of how many of these people come back, how many of them uh, come to know the Lord, how many of them uh, come to join the church, that demonstrates something that God is doing in your own hearts, that you're willing to take a risk. I mean, somebody that came here on Easter Sunday probably is not going anywhere else for church. I think it's probably safe to assume those 14 people are people who have no church home. And so I'm so encouraged by that, and it's also a reminder that redemptive presence in a place always involves relationship. Every time we see redemptive presence in the scriptures, it's through relationship. Last year, I heard uh, Tim Keller was speaking at a conference in Memphis, and he talked about how we used to have these dots as people, sort of intellectually. Uh, a dot might be an awareness of God as real. Uh, a dot might be an awareness of us as broken people. A dot might be the, the knowledge that we should be going to church. And so the role of the Christian then was simply to connect the dots of these people's thoughts. But today, people don't have those same dots. They don't have a general understanding of morality. They don't have a sense that they should be religious or go to church. But what they do have are echoes. Echoes from maybe where those dots used to be. Echoes that are, that are deep quiet reverberations in our souls. They're longings for things that we know belong in our lives, but we can't find. And so our role as believers is not simply to connect the dots, but to show that this deep echo within our soul, that it can be satisfied in, in one place and in one place only. 
the one echo that exists within all of us is a deep need for authentic, real, and vulnerable relationship. Authentic relationship with God, but also authentic relationship with one another. And so our role as believers then is to create a space where that echo can be heard and explored. In the same way I was encouraged yesterday after we wrapped up our Fort Columbia project, I stayed for maybe another hour or so and it was just the the project leaders, a couple of the ladies that work for the Loop Development Group or work for the city. Uh, And I asked uh, the two of them what, uh, you know, first of all, did, did this meet your expectations? Is this what you were hoping for? And they said, yes, absolutely. And one woman had tears in her eyes. And I said, well, what was the best part? Well, you know, what did you enjoy most about this? Uh, And the one woman said what she most enjoyed about it was seeing all of us serving together, seeing the park filled with people, seeing the way we were interacting with one another, even though we had servants from two other churches and we didn't all know one another. She said seeing the kids playing together and the way the parents were with the kids was incredibly encouraging. And she actually specifically pointed out two groups, the guys who were hanging the lights, Mark and Jackson and others, and then the guys who were putting together the picnic tables, Dan and uh, John and some of the others. And she said that she was worried as she saw those two projects going in the first couple hours because of how much more demanding it was than they actually expected it to be. And so the lady said she started to feel nervous that the guys might start getting frustrated or arguing or giving up on the project. Well, she said they just finished the work. Nobody complained, nobody got upset, there were no fights. They simply did the work, which was harder than expected, but they did so in such a, such a, a positive way. And so despite all the great things that happened at this park, the asphalt and the flowers and new paint and rocks the kids can say were, they were rocks, you know? Despite all these things, the thing that stood out the most was that that echo, that reverberation of relationship. The relationships that they saw among us and among the believers in that place. The lasting impression is relationship and community. So now, I know I'm preaching to the choir here. This is the most involved, most invested part of the church. And so I have no doubt that your desire is to live into this new identity, to to live on this new mission, but I think the biggest challenge for us is going to be how do we, how do we sustain this mission? How do we who, who serve week in and week out, who even give up uh, Saturdays for this mission, how do we sustain this? Because there's nothing on earth that's going to keep us coming back with all the energy and all the motivation to serve week after week, to love one another week after week, to build one another up, to seek to bring our non-Christian friends into the life of the church. Nothing on earth can do that, but only a new power within us can do that. And so the very final words of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew are this, Surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And so Jesus' final words in Matthew, they're not a a call to mission as much as they are a reminder of his presence with us in our mission. He runs to remind us that his presence, his powerful presence is with us that he doesn't just send us out, but he also goes with us. And he goes with us by his very own Holy Spirit. And it's apart from the Spirit living and dwelling within us and even growing in greater magnitude within us that we can have the energy and the strength and the motivation and the compassion and the power for redemptive presence 
over the long haul. And so the last thing I have are four things as I reflect on this new power that belongs to us, and then even as I think back over the last seven months to some of the major themes of Matthew, uh, four sort of final steps that I think we can take uh, to honor the message of Jesus in Matthew. And the first one is to devote yourself to Christ. These, these four things are things that maybe weren't directly explicit or like quotes from the book of Matthew, but things that are, are between the lines or overall impressions that we get as we look at the gospel of Matthew. As I think back on these 28 chapters and the 30 or so weeks that we've been in this book, the thing that stands out to me is simply the, the, the beauty and the glory and the power of Jesus, his compassion for people, the way he treated people who were down and out, who were, who were up and out, the ones who are, are wealthy or powerful, and yet he still shows them love as well. And what this series has done for me and hopefully for you is to show you how wise and beautiful and loving and compelling Jesus is. And I hope it leads you to devote yourself to him, not because you must, not because of merely what he's done for, for you, but because you, you love him and you simply want to follow and devote yourself to him. And so first is devote yourself to Christ, and second is to love one another. Specifically in, in the life of this church in, in Trinity, I want to encourage us to, to continue to love one another in, in real ways and in, in grace and in truth in our community groups and through our friendships. I think we do so well at, at coming together and, and hanging out and eating together and being in each other's homes and spending time together. But I want to, to encourage us to keep Christ at the center of this and to continue to truly love one another. Continue to meet together even when it's hard or inconvenient. Over the summer can be a hard time to, to continue to meet together. We travel more, we're, we're out of town more, our lives might be busier than before. But continue to love one another, continue to show up, make space, call, text, pray for one another, serve one another, love one another. And the third thing is to remember the poor. As I look back on Matthew, it's, it's impossible to miss Jesus' love for the poor and the needy, the, the marginalized, the, the outsider. In probably every chapter, Jesus is demonstrating his great love for those who are needy, those who are marginalized, the down and out. And as Christians, we don't serve the poor because we're, we're good people and we're trying to do something for those poor people down there. But as Christians, we recognize we are the poor. We are the ones in desperate need of Christ. We are ones who have only received everything that we have. We haven't earned anything. We need a life of solidarity with the poor to remind us of our complete dependence on God. And so I want to ask, where in your life do you have space or opportunity to serve the poor and needy? Where in life has, has God maybe given you an opportunity to care for the least of these What's, it, what's an area of your life where you can align yourself more fully with Christ's love for the poor and needy? And maybe what even in your lifestyle or your work needs to change so that you might remember the poor. And so the fourth and last thing is this, to enjoy life in the kingdom. The, the most, one of the most important statements of faith the Westminster Catechism. A catechism is a sort of question and answer series that, that allows you to, to learn the faith and grow in the faith. 
And the very first question and answer in the Westminster Catechism is this. What is the chief end of man? And the answer is, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. You exist to glorify God and to enjoy him. And even the way that you glorify God is through enjoying him. It's through your enjoyment of God, Father, Son, and Spirit, that we glorify him. Joy in in Christ and his kingdom, it's not the most explicit theme in the book of Matthew. But I think we we can't miss it either. When we see Jesus' joy in, in being with children, his joy in being with the poor, Jesus' joy in the the parables that he teaches, showing the love of the Father over and over. Jesus' joy in the meals that he shares with his disciples and others. The kingdom of God is full of joy as we devote ourselves to Christ. And so if our lives are are lacking in joy, what we need is not a, a funny movie or a day off or a vacation. What we need is more of Christ. In him, the Psalms say, there is fullness of joy. In him, there is peace and there is life. And we know joy isn't just a mere feeling of happiness, but joy is that that deep-rooted, abiding commitment to live in in the presence of Christ through everything in life. And so as we wrap up Matthew, devote yourself to Christ, love one another, remember the poor, enjoy life, in the kingdom. And my prayer for us is that through Matthew and through the series that we'll do coming up, is that we would cultivate a deep and abiding walk with Jesus. Let's pray.